Most of us are familiar with the stories of Robin Hood. Much like the Odyssey or the fables of the Brothers Grimm, these tales have become cornerstones of Western literature and lore, and have therefore entered the popular imagination. Who can't recall the skilled English archer's famous exploits in Sherwood Forest with his band of merry men, his skirmishes with the corrupt Sheriff of Nottingham, or its campaigns against the tyrannical Prince John? With its accounts of chivalry, romance, and intrigue, the story of Robin Hood continues to captivate and inspire. But are these legends based upon fact? Was he a real person? As it turns out, he very well could have been. In the 13th century, during what's become known as the First Baron's War, one man rose up to defend his king, his countrymen, and his homeland against rebel forces and foreign invasion, becoming both a hero and legend in the process. Welcome to this week's episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us, and today we'll be taking a look at the life and times of William of Cassingham. Merry England. That's how Scottish romanticist writer Sir Walter Scott famously refers to the country in his classic 1819 novel, Ivanhoe, which incidentally features Robin Hood as a supporting character. Set in the 12th century, its depiction of medieval England is rather fanciful, to say the least. In reality, it was anything but merry, as it was embroiled in several conflicts within its own borders as well as with neighboring countries. The First Baron's War, which rocked the nation for two years between 1215 and 1217, was one such conflict in which the English found themselves fighting amongst each other as well as against Against a foreign power. Let's first pose the question, what led up to this conflict? It all started on June 10, 1215, when Robert Fitzwalter and a group of fellow landowners, commonly referred to as barons and fed up with what they felt was the despotic and tyrannical rule of their king, John, drafted a document known as the Articles of the Barons. This document, which according to its own terms laid down the law of the land, was to limit the king's power and establish certain rights for the English people, and would go on to become the Magna Carta, or Great Charter in Latin, a set of laws that would one day inspire both the English and American bills of rights. The purpose of this charter was to avoid a full-scale civil war, the sentiment of which had been brewing for quite some time due to tensions between the barons and their king. With King John forced to put the royal seal to the document that same day, the barons restored their allegiance to the sovereign nine days later. But things were shaky from the get-go. For starters, the Magna Carta contained clauses that visibly reduced the king's power through a medieval legal process known as distraint, which would allow the barons to override their ruler at any given time by means of force. While this process was common across feudal Europe, it had never been applied to a reigning monarch before. Needless to say, it didn't sit well with King John. Tensions soon flared, and after a few months' feeble attempts at negotiating, war broke out between the barons and the king's supporters. What began as a skirmish over the Magna Carta, however, soon burst into an all-out dynastic battle for the throne of England itself. Faced with a powerful adversary in King John and those loyal to his rule, the barons turned to France for guidance and military aid, placing their faith in Louis VIII, the son and heir apparent of the then-French king Philip II. The young prince initially agreed to send troops to protect London. But the barons had something greater in mind, for Louis to launch a full-scale invasion of England to reclaim the land, as they put it, that was rightfully his. The Norman conquest, some 150 years earlier, in 1066, had established heavy French presence in England, one that lasted until the fall of the Angevin dynasty, so named for the Anjou region of western France, from where its rulers governed, in the 13th century. While heavily discouraged by both his father and Pope Innocent III, he nevertheless set out to invade the country, and, in May of 1216, his navies were spotted off the coast of Kent in southeast England by King John and his forces. Seizing the opportunity to regroup, the king and his armies fled to Winchester, the English capital at the time. 
As such, upon making landfall in England, Prince Louis was met with little to no resistance. This allowed the young prince to march into London unscathed, whereupon he was greeted by her citizenry, as well as the barons, and was proclaimed, though not crowned, King of England, in the old St. Paul's Cathedral, the predecessor of the current church, which stood on the same site from 1087 until the Great London Fire in 1666. It is recorded that several nobles and dignitaries were present to pay tribute to him. Seeing this as a major change, several of King John's supporters switched sides and joined the barons in London to pledge their allegiance to Prince Louis, causing Archdeacon and historian Gerald of Wales to proclaim that, quote, the madness of slavery is over. The time of liberty has been granted. English necks are free from the yoke. But not everyone was as enthusiastic about this transition. It was around this time that the subject of today's episode first leapt onto the pages of history. Known simply as William of Cassingham, now Kensham, he was a country squire, a sort of landholder of a rural estate who may also have been a knight's apprentice, who was fiercely loyal to King John. Upon learning that the French had not only landed in England, but that Londoners had essentially greeted them with open arms, he was furious, and vowed to take a stand against them. Knowing full well that invasion of the southeastern part of the country was imminent, he began to organize a group of local men, a militia of sorts, to fend off the enemy. Mostly comprised of skilled archers like himself, they retreated into the then heavily wooded area known as the Weald, the old English word for forest, a vast region that now extends into the counties of Hampshire, Surrey, Sussex, and Kent, to train and prepare for the advancing French forces. Not surprisingly, William's hunches were correct. Disembarking from London on June 6, 1216, Prince Louis led his army south into Surrey, what's now the county of Surrey, and proceeded to conquer and overtake each fortification he happened upon. The speed in which these castles and fortresses fell was startling, to say the least. The following day, the French arrived at a small town called Raygate, where the castle had been abandoned, no doubt in fear of the encroaching army. From there, they pressed on to Guildford, the castle of which surrendered upon their arrival. Farnham Castle was next, initially closing its gates to the invaders, but quickly changed their tune when the enemy began laying siege to it. Just eight days later, on June 14th, they arrived in Winchester, the English capital, where they were met with fierce resistance, though King John had by then retreated to Newark Castle in Nottinghamshire. After a bloody ten-day siege, the castle's forces also surrendered. By early July that same year, a whopping one-third of England was under French control. From Surrey, Prince Louis moved on to Kent in an attempt to take the key port city of Dover, a feat he had neglected to do up to that point, and that his father, King Philip, had taunted him about on a near-constant basis. On the way, he overtook and conquered the castles at Canterbury and Rochester, as well as their environs. By mid-July, most of Kent had fallen to the French. But as they entered the Weald, the aforementioned heavily wooded area between London and the English Channel, they were in for a rather unpleasant surprise. There, hidden amongst the greenery and dense foliage, were William of Cassingham and his men, eager to drive the enemy out of Kent, and therefore all of England for good. According to a contemporary source by monk and historian Roger of Wendover, William's guerrilla force consisted of, quote, a thousand men in total, unquote, all of whom were skilled archers from the towns and villages within and surrounding the Weald. This setting proved ideal for them, not just because of their familiarity with it, but because they were protected by the sheer number of trees, which they could quickly hide behind and disappear beneath a thick brush. As unsuspecting French forces became lost in the impenetrable forest, the archers, positioned within trees or mounted on camouflaged horses, fired their deadly arrows, killing several enemy troops in the process. It was at this time that the Weald became known as a place of death amongst the French. But Prince Louis was not to be deterred. 
Considering these run-ins in the forests of Kent as minor setbacks, he stormed on to Dover, which he reached on July 19, 1216. No sooner had he arrived did he begin laying siege to the city itself. The adjacent castle, seeing the destruction that befell their beloved Dover, prepared itself for attack. Its constable, Hubert de Bourg, in the meantime amassed a well-supplied garrison of men that, by July 25th, was ready for battle, and not a moment too soon, it seems, for it was on that day that French forces arrived at the castle's gate. Prince Louis's first order of business was to break through the Barbican, that is, the castle's outer gate or line of defense, which he successfully did. From there, his army was ordered to bring down the inner gate proper, but de Bourg's men fended them off by sealing the breaches in the outer wall with timber. Determined to break through, however, the French relentlessly sieged the castle for a whopping three months, during which time a sizable chunk of Prince Louis's forces were either dead or exhausted. On October 14th, he called a truce, and he and his army retreated to London. Spent though they were, the French weren't about to be let off the hook quite so easily. Just four days after the truce, on October 18th, King John died of dysentery at Newark Castle in Nottinghamshire, where he had been for three months. His son, Henry III, assumed the throne at the tender age of nine. With London being the seat of French authority in England, the coronation was held at Gloucester Abbey in Gloucester. Not having a crown available at the time, the young king was instead given a gold necklace. Despite his youth and inexperience, English favor quickly fell on the new king, and Prince Louis lost a great deal of his English support. On November 12, 1216, the Magna Carta was revised and reissued in the new monarch's name, and sealed by his regent, William Marshall, who, by the war's end, would become known as the greatest knight in the land. But this shift in power by no means meant an end to the war. On December 6, 1216, Prince Louis took Hertford Castle in Hertford, and later that same month, Berkhamstead Castle in Berkhamstead, both of which are in Hertfordshire. In an odd turn of events, however, he allowed the defending forces of both fortifications to leave honorably with their weapons and horses. But by early 1217, with much of the French army's supplies having been repleted and in desperate need of reinforcements, the young prince and his troops departed from London and made for the southeastern coast for a brief sojourn to the mother country. Seizing the opportunity to attack the weakened enemy, William of Cassingham and his guerrilla forces ambushed them near the town of Lewis, killing several and chasing the survivors to Winchelsea, a small town in East Sussex, where they narrowly escaped total devastation thanks to the coincidental arrival of a French fleet offshore. Through it all, the truce Prince Louis had made with Dover Castle held, albeit shakily, but in the first few months of 1217, while the French were regrouping back home, the garrison repeatedly disrupted enemy communication with France. Incensed and now fully restocked, Prince Louis returned to England, where he and his troops set up camp in Dover just outside the castle walls, only to have it leveled and burned to the ground by William of Cassingham and his men shortly thereafter. In a stroke of luck, for the French anyway, a fleet carrying even more troops arrived at the same time. Because of the devastation faced at the camp, Prince Louis was forced to land at Sandwich, a town ten miles up the coast, and marched down to Dover, where, on May 12, 1217, he began a siege on the castle. But this new attack weakened and cost him much of his forces, so much so that William Marshall, King Henry III's regent, along with William of Cassingham himself, were able to lead English forces to a heavy pro-French baron stronghold at Lincoln Castle in nearby Lincoln, and successfully defeated it. From there, Marshall directed his attention to London, the seat of French rule in England, and drove the enemy out there as well. Simultaneously, Prince Louis was engaged in two fearsome naval campaigns in the Straits of Dover, but was defeated by none other than Hubert de Bourg, the aforementioned constable of Dover. Castle. His convoy for reinforcements having been completely destroyed, the young prince had no choice but to put an end to the fighting. 
By the end of the Second Barons' War, most of the barons who had started the conflict on Prince Louis' side had defected over to English authority under King Henry III. This, combined with the defeat of the French in May of 1217, left the enemy sovereign no choice but to negotiate. At the signing of the Treaty of Lambeth on September 11th that same year, the young prince was forced to relinquish his title as King of England, and agreed that he'd never been a legitimate ruler in the first place. In addition, the pro-French barons were to be granted amnesty, on the condition that they pay a hefty sum of 10,000 marks to expedite French withdrawal from the country. Prince Louis also vowed that he'd never attack England again, which he didn't, and in a sad historical footnote, he returned to France with his tail between his legs, where he not only faced chastisement from his father, but excommunication from the Catholic Church by Pope Innocent III. And what became of the brave and noble William of Cassingham? Well, upon French withdrawal from England, he was granted a pension from the crown and was given the title of Warden of Wales. Later in life, he was made Sergeant of the Peace, a predecessor to the modern British Provost Marshal, the head of the Royal Military Police, for his service in the conflict. He would hold this post until his death in 1257, and would later be remembered in Raphael Hollingshed's 16th century chronicles as, quote, a worthy man of English blood, unquote. But what does William of Cassingham have to do with Robin Hood, you might ask, to circle back to the opening of this episode? Some historians, such as Professor Sean McGlynn of the University of Plymouth, believe that, quote, William of Cassingham is Robin Hood, or at least that the latter is based upon the deeds of the former, unquote. In other words, the real figure shaped the hero of legend. Indeed, the similarities are startling. William, for example, had a knack for robbing the French of their riches, especially those that had been stolen from the English, and returning them to their rightful owners. The forest setting of both fact and fiction are undeniable, though the Weald and Sherwood Forest are two very different and distinct wooded areas. The fact that both were skilled archers also says something, as most noblemen of the day fought with sword or lance and shield. We may never know for certain if the bards who first composed and sang the tales of Robin Hood were at all influenced by the heroism and noble deeds of William of Cassingham, but, if you ask me, the evidence speaks for itself. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this journey to medieval England with me. What do you think? Do you believe the stories of Robin Hood were at all inspired and or influenced by William of Cassingham's heroic deeds? Give me a follow on Instagram at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company, and let me know in the comments of this post. If you enjoyed this episode and all others that came before it and would like to support me to ensure future quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There you'll find three monthly support plans that fit any budget. This podcast is also available everywhere you listen to your podcasts, so whichever platform you choose, be sure to like, follow, and share. Tune in next week for another exciting, brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. <laughs>